All right, so I lost it. Oh, there we go. Okay. So we're in uh, the second chapter of 1 John. And uh, so do you realize that you can pass a test just by memorizing the answers to the questions? Mm -hmm. So if you had a math test, say, with 10 questions on it, and somebody uh, gives you the answers, all you'd have to do is memorize those answers. And then on the day to test, you just fill in the blanks because you, with your memorized answers. And you'd pass the test. But what if on the day of the test, the teacher changes all 10 of those problems? Now what? If you don't know why the answers are correct, and if you can't work out the math on your own, you're going to fail that test, right? So, last time in 1 John, we learned about the facts of the case. We must walk in the light to have a relationship with God. And then John laid out his first test of faith for us because the whole intent of his letter is to, is to encourage us to test ourselves to see whether or not we have eternal life because that's a very important question. So the first test he gives us is the sin test. What do you do with your sin? Some people call it the righteousness test. And he also gave us the answer to the test. We must confess our sins and trust God who is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But John doesn't want you to memorize the answer. He wants you to be able to work out the math because eternal life is at stake. Now, failing a math test is uncomfortable, but ending up in hell, well, I think you get the point. Today, John will show you how to work out that sin test, so you'll come up with the right answer. Are you walking in the light or not? So last time, we left off with the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 10, and it says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's a pretty stern warning. Do you ignore your sin? Do you say you have no sin? Do you claim that you've never sinned? Then you're walking in the dark and the truth is not in you. Martin Luther famously said that we are saints and sinners at the same time. And that's the condition we will be in until the day we die. We're in a battle. We're in a battle against our own flesh, against the world, and against the devil. But if we continue to fight sin through daily repentance and confession, confession first, repentance second, then we'll stay walking in the light. That's the posture of a redeemed sinner. As I illustrated in the last sermon, Someone who walks in the light has his shadow of sin behind him. But if he turns from the light, he can see his sin. And when he sees his sin, he turns back into the light. That's confession and repentance. So he's directing himself into the light. And that's what we need to do. That's how you walk in the light. Keep that sin behind you. So after this stern warning in chapter 1, John changes his tone a little bit and his pastorly heart comes out. He loves these people. So let me read the first verse of our sermon today. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the reason for his stern warning. He's trying to shock them out of their complacency. He scares them with the threat of making God a liar by denying sin. And then John turns and he addresses them as little children. He speaks that way because he doesn't want them to sin. They're his children in the faith. And he cares about what happens to them. He cares about what happens to you too. When he addresses them as children, he's not talking about how old they were. In his mind, they were his children because they came to Christ under his ministry. It didn't matter how old you were. John loved these people deeply because they belonged to the Lord. And they were literally family to him. 
and to Jesus. Not by descent, but by new creation in Christ. The receiving of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord is what knits us together as family. And the life we live together is what makes our joy full. That's why we're full of joy to be gathered this morning. And that joy helps us to persevere in this battle against the ungodly system of the world, against our own sin, and against the devil, our adversary. John wants our joy to be full. Amen? But we can't play with sin and have full joy. You must do what Christ tells you to do with your sin. Repent and be forgiven. Are you confessing and repenting? Then you're walking in the light. And John says, keep it up, my little children. Now, John, he's not under any illusions about sin. And I hope none of us are either. He doesn't want us to sin, but he knows we will. And so in the second half of verse 1, he gives us a great encouragement. He says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that's my first point. If we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now that's a comforting statement. We have an advocate. You need to own this truth. You got to get this one deep into your heart because this will help you to weather every storm, every temptation, every trial, every setback. Every time you mess up, you remember this. You have an advocate. But what is an advocate? Well, an advocate is someone who will act on behalf of someone else. An advocate will argue a case on behalf of someone else. An advocate will give good counsel to someone regarding a topic that he's an expert in. The Greek word translated there should be familiar to you. Parakletos is the word for advocate, which means helper, advisor, or counselor. Now, lawyers are advocates. Glenn Sella is an advocate. And clients come to him for help when they have to go into a court case or if they need help negotiating a legal contract. Glenn is an expert in the law. He counsels his clients, he acts on their behalf, and he will argue their case for them. The client comes to him because they can't do it themselves. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the resources or the ability to help themselves, so they need an advocate. They come to Glenn, and so Glenn steps in, and he advocates for them. Well, Jesus is your advocate before God the Father. When you sin, there's a court case before God the Father, and Jesus appears with you and argues your case for you to obtain a not guilty verdict. Jesus is your lawyer in the courtroom of God. That word parakletos should sound familiar to you because Jesus uses that word to describe the Holy Spirit also. In John 14, 16, and 17, we read, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him or knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells within you and will be in you. That word helper in those verses is parakletos again. And we can see that the Holy Spirit has a slightly different advocate role than Jesus does. The Holy Spirit advocates us by living, advocates for us by living inside of us, right? He is the light of God come to dwell in us that we might shine His light out into the world. The Holy Spirit advocates by guiding us into the truth, into the light, as John keeps pointing out. The Holy Spirit advocates by helping us to remember the truth of Christ. In fact, that's how the whole scripture was produced by the Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance what the apostles heard and wrote down for us. He teaches us through the word and he points us into the light. Now, initially, the Holy Spirit advocates for us by opening our eyes to the fact that we are sinners, that we are condemned, and that we need a savior. 
the Holy Spirit convicts the worldly of sin so that they might be saved. We might say that the Holy Spirit makes sure that we get arrested and that we are convicted of our crimes. He makes sure that we appear before the court of God the Father to face our death sentence. That's why we need a lawyer, right? Enter Jesus. If Jesus is not your lawyer, then you will represent yourself before God on Judgment Day. No one who does that will escape the death sentence. But did you know that Jesus has a 100% success rate when he advocates for his clients? If Jesus is your lawyer, you can count on a not guilty verdict. But how can he guarantee that? How can Jesus guarantee 100% success all of the time? Well, we see that in the next verse. 1 John 2, I'm going to read half of it. Because Jesus is a very unique lawyer. He is the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Well, that's the payment. That's the, that's the, that's the, um, the fine. That's the jail term. That's the punishment. It's all satisfied in Christ. That's why he can guarantee a 100% success rate. Jesus has already satisfied justice for every client that he represents. Now, Jesus rose again on the third day after suffering the just wrath of God against sin and dying on a cross, and that was the payment for every sin, every crime, every injustice, every violation of God's good law. But when we sin, as John reminds us, Jesus is our lawyer, and he's our payment for sin. Now, that's some lawyer. Now, Glenn Sella has expressed to me that he wants to be more like Jesus in his practice. So, to that end, if you will be his client, not only will he advocate for you, but starting on this Monday, he will also pay all your fines, <laughs> do all your community service, and serve your jail term, too, if that's necessary. <laughs> now, I'm kidding, of course. But I hope that illustrates for you just how amazing Jesus, our Savior, really is. So knowing this truth should give us great joy and freedom to keep living for Christ every day. We strive to not sin, yes? But when we do, church, Christ is our advocate. He served our sentence for us. We are innocent in Him. So rejoice in that, church. Live in that truth and remind yourself of that truth every day. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And we never move past that. We live in it. It's our transportation to the gates of heaven. So stay on the bus and keep your hands inside the windows, please. But John doesn't stop there. There's a second half to that verse where we read, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, because Jesus is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, his propitiation, his payment is sufficient for all sin. But you must have Jesus as your lawyer to receive that not guilty verdict. Now, there's been a lot of theological ink spent and minds bent trying to figure out what does the second half of this verse really mean. There's a lot of wars have been fought about it. What does it mean that Christ is the propitiation for the whole world? Some have used it in defense of universal salvation, teaching that all men will be saved regardless of whether or not they know Christ or have responded to his gospel. Others refuting universal salvation have pressed it in the other direction, trying to show that this verse can't mean what it plainly says because then everyone would be saved and we know that you must respond to the gospel to be saved. The theological camps put on their armor and they head out to the battlefield, swords drawn, voices raised, the dust flies and the metal clashes as each camp valiantly struggles 
to prove that what God didn't say is the truth that we must believe. (laughs) Church, I would like to suggest a better way. First, we must realize something. God has not revealed everything to us. Trying to resolve the things that God has not said is the ground where many of these theological battles are fought. Now, I'm not saying that these things are not important. I'm not saying that these tensions don't exist. They obviously do. That's why the battle's there. I, for one person, is one who loves to debate theology. You know that about me, some of you. (laughs) And I have been the guy to take out his sword and in order to prove my point, mow down all the dissenting views, completely oblivious to the damage that I've done to a brother or a sister that I was challenging. That's the wrong way to do it. That's sinful. Now, I work hard now not to refrain from talking theology, but I do it without sinning against my brother. I also avoid debates where there's a sword drawn, if you know what I mean. The goal, church, is to seek the truth together. The goal is to lovingly and respectfully considering the text together come to the true meaning and respect brothers who have a dissenting view. You especially want to listen to and understand someone who has a dissenting view. Now, we're never going to get rid of these sinful confrontations in the church, but can I encourage you not to be the source of those confrontations? Now, I also want to take a moment and encourage you Because these battles, if you take a minute and think about it, they should be an encouragement because they point to two really amazing truths. First, the fight is over something real. When's the last time you had a fight about the doctrine of unicorns? Or the spaghetti monster? Right? It's so real, in fact, that men have chosen to lose their lives instead of changing their position. That's conviction. Second, the fight is over something so precious, so valuable, and so important that they will defend it at all costs. So don't be discouraged. If it wasn't true, nobody would be fighting about it. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he shared his testimony about the fact that when he looked at the fighting in the church, and he looked at all the different denominations, he knew that they were on to something. And it was worth fighting about. And he wanted in on that. It was one of the things that led him out of atheism and into faith, was the fighting in the church. So don't be discouraged. But do know what you believe and why you believe it. So log this thought in your mind because it will be important for where John goes in verses 3 and 4. These folks who are so passionate about the word, who are so passionate about God's truth, they're trying to keep his truths. So let's leave the debates on the side for a moment and let's look at what this verse says. What can we confidently know about this verse's meaning? Well, it's just this and it's my second point. Every sin that will be forgiven, no matter where in the world that sin is committed, no matter who commits that sin, no matter what time that sin is committed, if that sin will be forgiven, then that sin will be paid for by this propitiation and only this propitiation. If you live in Vernon, New Jersey, and you need your sins forgiven, then this is the propitiation for your sin. If you live in Anchorage, Alaska, and you need your sin forgiven, well, this is the propitiation for your sin. If you live in New Zealand, Asia, Europe, South America, Antarctica, and you need your sin forgiven, this is the propitiation for your sin. If you live in Las Vegas, Nevada, well, nobody gets saved in Las Vegas. (laughs) But if they did... This would be the propitiation for that sin too. There is no other propitiation. This is the only one. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said, because he's the propitiation for all sin. And it's sufficient to cover every sin of every person in every time and every place, past, present, and future. It is available to everyone who will make use of it by repenting and trusting God. John encourages the people he's writing to to remember this propitiation because it's there for them. And he encourages us too because we live thousands of miles from Ephesus where this letter was written. And we live thousands of years past John's time. But we have the same propitiation. Sadly, not everyone will take advantage of this offer. Not everyone will ask God to apply this propitiation to their sin. Some will say, there's no God. There's no creator. Well, if you say that, then I have a question for you. How did nothing create everything? R.C. Sproul famously said that if there was ever a time where there was nothing, we would still have nothing now. You know what you get when you add nothing to nothing? You get nothing. You know what you get when you add nothing to nothing 10 million times? Make it 10 billion times. You get nothing 10 billion times. The only logical statement that you can make is that something created everything. Some will say there's no sin to be forgiven. It's a made-up thing. It's a social construct. Sin is a non-thing. Well, I have a question for you. I'm curious. Why do you call the police when somebody steals your car? As if there was something wrong with that. Hmm? What standard are you appealing to to say that it's wrong to steal your car? It's not your standard, is it? The police arrest car thieves all the time, everywhere, and they never consult you about it, do they? It's not built into nature, is it? You don't call the police when the squirrel robs your bird feeder. The only logical position is, is that there is a standard of right and wrong and that there is a standard bearer and a lawgiver behind that standard. And it can't be a created thing. Others are not so naive. You say there is a God and a creator and there is a standard of right and wrong. But you say there's many ways to be saved. Jesus isn't the only way to God. There must be another way. You may even say that Jesus was a great man of God and that he's the perfect example of how we should live. But he's not the only way to be saved. Well, let me ask you something. Do you know that Jesus himself asked for a different way? In Matthew 26, 39, we read, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know what answer he got. Do you really think that you're going to get a different answer from God? Do you really think that he will accept your plan and your ideas of what propitiation he should accept when he didn't give another way to his own son? You know, we all struggle with pride. But if pride was a ladder, then you'd be standing on the top rung. And you know what that little yellow sticker says you shouldn't be doing, right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. The only wise thing that you can do is get off that ladder. Put your feet on the ground and realize that Jesus is the creator. We see that in John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Realize that Jesus as God is the standard of righteousness. 
In Romans 10, verses 3 and 4, we read, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And realize that Jesus is the payment, the propitiation, and the only propitiation for your sin. That propitiation is available to all who will ask for it through repentance and faith. So, turn from your sin and trust in His propitiation. Throw away your plan of salvation and trust in His plan. All other plans will fail. I can't stress that enough. You don't have a better plan. There is no other plan. It's the plan for the whole world. That's what verse 2b is saying. So now we come to verse 3. And by this, and this is, the, uh, this is what he's angling for, the encouragement he wants to give us. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, that's Jesus, if we keep his commandments. That's the application of the sin test. It's the math. He told us that if we confess and repent, then God is faithful to forgive us and to remove all unrighteousness from us. That was the answer. But now John's going to show us the math. He doesn't want you to memorize the answer. He wants you to be able to work out the math. Now, it's obvious that sin is breaking God's law. It's obvious that confession and repentance is the answer. But how can we have confidence that we belong to Jesus and that we have eternal life to look forward to? That's the aim that John is after. The answer is in that phrase, if we keep his commandments. So, do you keep his commandments? That's the question. That's what faith does. John is focusing on our attitude towards the commandments. The Greek language is much fuller than English, and that poses a problem when translators try to bring the meaning into English. So when you're studying Scripture, this is a, this is a study tip here for you, when you study Scripture, you can't use an English dictionary to, to determine the meaning of words you don't understand. You can't do that. You have to go and find out what Greek or Hebrew word was translated and then go to a Greek or Hebrew dictionary to get the meaning. That's the only way you'll see the fullness of what's there. So when we see the word keep, for instance, a lot of us go right to that means obey. But it doesn't mean obey. The Greek word translated keep is tereo. It's pronounced tereo. <laughs> but if you keep tereo, the commandments, obedience follows. It does. But it doesn't mean to obey. There's also a Hebrew synonym for that word. It's called shamer. And it means the same thing. But there's no place in the scripture, in the original languages, this was very interesting, that command us to obey the commandments. You would think under the old covenant, the covenant of works, that we would find that phrase, obey the commandments. And some translations have it in there, but you got to look up the word that was translated obey. But God never changes. You can search Deuteronomy and you'll only find the phrase, except in a couple of mistranslations and a couple of misapplications, keep the commandments. Now, I wish I had time to expand this because the word study is amazing, but we don't have time. So I'm going to leave it, I'm going to leave this with you as the last observation, and then we're going to define tereo. There's no Greek or Hebrew word that means obey in the English sense of the word, Okay. So when you see the word obey in any English translation of the Bible, you have to go back and determine the Greek or the Hebrew that was used there to translate obey. And then you'll get the full meaning of the passage. So that's my tip for you today. Now, 
The word keep in this verse, like I said, was the word tereo, and that word means uh, to, well, let me, let me go here. That word doesn't mean obey, but the NIV, this is, we got to be careful here, and some other modern translations in these verses that we're reading, they translate tereo as obey, and that's a mistranslation. There's a difference between obeying the command and keeping the command. There's a difference between true repentance and false repentance. There's a difference between knowing the answer and being able to work out the math. So let me illustrate. When you clean out a drawer, you know the drawer I'm thinking of, right? The one that you've piled up with all kinds of things because there's no other place to put them. And then that one thing you need, you go digging for it and, you're, and, you, and you might even find it. And then after you find it, you can't close the drawer because now <laughs> you got to put it together like a puzzle, you know, Rubik's Cube style. And finally, you get so upset with yourself, it's like, I've got to clean out this drawer. And so you do. Now, if you're like most people, you make a few piles. There's the give it away pile. Then there's the throw it away pile. And then there's the keep it pile. Now, when you're considering what to keep, what makes you decide to keep it versus throw it out? Well, that usually boils down to two things. One, you know you're going to use it. Makes sense. Or it's something I treasure. Now, it's easy to understand why we keep things that we're going to use, but understanding the things that we treasure is a little more mysterious and interesting. Often, the things that we treasure have no practical use at all. But they represent something, something that's dear to us. They bring back pleasant memories of the past. They often remind us of relationships. These objects in some way make us feel emotionally connected to the person that they represent. Even if that person's no longer with us. And throwing one of those things away is kind of like throwing the person away. We value the relationship with whoever that item represents so much that we keep and protect it like it was our connection to that relationship. You see where I'm going with this? The commandments, the law of God, are a representation of the character of God. John is asking us, do you keep them? Do you treasure them? Do you view the law as your instruction for knowing God and for relating to Him? Does your desire to obey the law flow from a desire to show God that you love Him? When you break the law or you disobey the command, do you fear punishment? Or do you grieve because you've broken fellowship with God? Are you angry because you got caught? Or are you sad because you let God down? In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Greek word tereo means to keep, to guard, to watch, to preserve, to reserve, to take care of, to keep watch over, and to hold fast. That's what it means, not obey. But if you do that with the word, with the commandments, you will obey them. In other words, do you treasure the commandments? Psalm 32 gives us a, a picture of the difference between obeying and keeping. There we read Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Do you see the law of God as a bit and a bridle? Always grating against your will and preventing you from going where you want to go? Or do you see the Word of God 
as your wisdom, as your instruction, and as your counsel? Do you see the law, as verse 8 says, as God's loving eye on you for good? Or do you find yourself saying things like, I don't understand why God's law won't let me fill in the blank with the sin of your choice? You say those things because you don't have understanding. You don't understand the law and its purposes. And more importantly, and to John's point, you don't know the giver of the law. You have failed the sin test. If that's you, then the law only has one purpose for you. It's there to show you how much you're not like God. It's there to show you how far you fall short of the standard. How guilty you will be on judgment day. You need a lawyer. The law is there so that you can see your sin and be convicted of it. It's there to make you full of regret and sorrow. Why? Well, so you will call on the name. What name? Jesus. This Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus is the word, the law word that you rejected. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundation on which all of creation stands. If you're not building your life on this stone, then you're building a house of cards. If you're not keeping Jesus' words, you will lose everything in the end. Worse than that, you will lose your life eternal. You will not experience, you will experience, sorry, endless death in hell, not annihilation. You're not going to vaporize. You will pay off your sin debt in hell. In Revelation 14, 9 through 11, we read, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, those worshipers or these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Well, now there's another topic where the theological swords come out and the battles are fought. What, what's the mark of the beast, right? But let's put all those arguments on the side because there's a simple question embedded right in there, and that's what really matters. The question is, what are you marked by? Are you marked by running after the things of the world? Are you marked by an acceptance of the world's system and ideas? Are you marked by your go-along-to-get-along style of living? Are you marked by storing up treasures on earth like the fool in his barns in Luke 12? And what impression do you leave with those who know you? Do you leave the mark of worldliness by your conduct around others? If that's you, be warned. You're aligned with the beast, the enemies of God. Or are you marked by godliness? Do you leave the impression of holiness in your conduct with others? Do you value the things of God above all else? Do you love the commandments because of the image of God in them and the closeness to God that flows from keeping them? In other words, do you keep the commandments? If the Antichrist police force shows up at your doorstep, would you be arrested for being a Christian? Or would they stamp your warrant approved by the beast? That's what John wants you to consider. That's what he's pointing to here. So verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If the truth is not in you, guess what mark you have? The point is, and this is my third point, 
that we're either keepers or we're liars. And once again, welcome to Highlands, John stings us very sharply. Even if we love the commandments and even if we're confessing and repenting of our sins, if you're like me, there's always this nagging worry in us because we still struggle with sin. We still find ourselves being rebellious at times. There's a lot of times when I say to myself, how could I be a Christian and live like this? Am I really saved or am I deceived? I don't measure up to God's standard. Well, my friends, believe it or not, that is the mark of a real Christian. We worry about our relationship with God because we desire it and we treasure it. The thought of losing it or of not having it brings us grief and we worry. The lost, they never worry about things like that. You know, you worry about the things that you treasure. That's why you protect them. The lost want to protect their sin. The saved want to protect their relationship with God. Our attitude towards the commandments, that's John's point, our attitude towards the commandments shows us which side of that equation we're on. Remember, John wants us to have confidence that we belong to Christ. And here's that confidence. It's in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And so here John uses keep the word instead of keep the commandment. But that just emphasizes the point that he's making. Jesus is the word. We see that in the opening verses of the Gospel of John. When we treasure Jesus, we keep his word. That means we believe his promises, we trust his conclusions, and we obey his instructions. Why? Because we love him and we want to please him. Our motivation is completely different from mere obedience to avoid punishment. That's why John says that the love of God is truly perfected in those who keep, who treasure the word. It's like a snowball. I know, that sounds funny. The more you roll in the love of God through his word, the more his love sticks to you. You keep on growing. And you become more and more like him yourself. You grow into this big, fat ball of Christ-like love. And the world will hate you for it. Sorry. Welcome to Highlands. The love of Christ is reflected in his commands. And you love those commands. You see the good and you see the blessing that flows out of following his will and his way. You want that for the whole world. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But the love of the world is different. They love their sin more than their Creator. They admire godly people. They're not blind to virtue. They know what good is. They know right from wrong because it's written on their hearts, Romans 2.15. But they don't want to be good. It gets in the way of what they really desire. So what do we do with these people? Well, you love them. You pray for them. You teach them the truth when they will listen. You do good to them. You show them hospitality. You share the gospel with them. And you live the gospel out before them. And church, if it comes to it, you die at their hands asking God to forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what the love of God perfected in us looks like. That's what keeping the commandments looks like. Are you like that? Am I like that? Do you want to be like that? I do. Are you far from that, but are striving to be more like that? Then you can be confident that you are in Him. 
That's what verse 6 says. It's the big idea. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is how Jesus walked. He loved us while we were yet his enemies. Keepers, are you finding ways to love your enemies and lead them to Christ? Then you're abiding in Christ. Christ prayed for us before we were born. John 17, verse 20. Keepers, are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for the unborn? Are you praying for the good news to overcome the whole earth? Well, then you're abiding in Christ. Christ lived according to the truth. He taught the truth. He defended the truth. Keepers, are you being taught through the word of Christ and then teaching it to your children, to your family, and to your neighbors? Do you stand for the truth whenever it's challenged? Well, then you're abiding in Christ. Christ did good to us even though we don't deserve it, including dying for us to redeem us back to God. Keepers, are you living sacrificially towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, freely giving of your resources without expecting a return, owing no one anything but a debt of love, showing hospitality and carrying each other's burdens? Then you're abiding in Christ. Do we love God with all our heart, mind, and strength? And are we loving our neighbors as we love ourselves? Then you're abiding in Christ, and the love of God is being perfected in you. And by this, you may know that you are in him. Christ did all these things for us, and in response to that, we love him, and we keep his commandments, which is the fourth point. The fact that we keep his commandments is evidence of God's love being perfected in us. I'll leave you with this picture from Matthew 25. You can read it for yourself and study it. I'm going to paraphrase it. But this parable speaks of the final judgment when the goats and the sheep will be separated. And Jesus welcomes the righteous sheep into the kingdom and he commends them. For what? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. And the sheep, they were surprised. They were unaware that they had done this for Jesus. And they asked him, Jesus, when did we do this for you? And Jesus replies, truly, I say to you, as you did it to the, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The sheep are the keepers of Christ's commandments. They were abiding in him to the point that, that it was their natural conduct to walk like Jesus walked. So much so that they didn't even think it was remarkable that they did any of these things. They were being perfected by the love of God. But the goats, on the other hand, they were the minimalists. They were obeying the commandments, or so they thought. They didn't steal, but they didn't give either. No food, no drink. They didn't murder, but they didn't clothe the naked. They didn't care for the sick or visit the prison with the gospel message of life. They may have stopped the bad, as we learned in last sermon, but they did not restore the good. They were self-centered, trying to avoid punishment. And they were surprised on Judgment Day. Their box checking paid off with a trip to hell. And they thought that they were heaven-bound. They did not keep the commandments. Their love for Christ did not overflow into good deeds for neighbor. They were lying to themselves. You know, a lot of people know that I'm a lawnmower guy, and I can know when a customer loves his tractor. You know how I know? It's because when I show up for a service call, he hands me the manual for the tractor. 
and you open that thing up, and right there is the purchase receipt. This is when this tractor was born into my life. And he's got every receipt for every part that he bought to maintain that tractor. And then when you go to the instructions for how to keep this tractor in good shape, he's got everything underlined. This is when you change the oil. This is when you check the tire pressure. It's all underlined, and everything's in order. How much more so should we treat the Word of God? How much more so should we treasure this Jesus and take his instruction manual right here and record everything it says to us in our hearts? Mark every page. Learn everything that it says so that by keeping these words, we can show our love for Christ. And in that, our joy will be full. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, help us to treasure you. Help us to treasure your word and to take it in deep into our hearts that we live according to it without even realizing it, Lord. Lord, help us not to be like mules that need to be guided by bits and bridles. Lord, help us especially to bring this love that you're perfecting in us to those who need it, who need a lawyer, who need Jesus. Lord, help us to love our enemies and to give our lives in service to our King for their good and for your honor, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we have an advocate, the righteous, that no matter how much we mess up the mission, we have Jesus who straightens our path, who forgives us, who comes to us, who makes us right again and restores our joy. Let us serve him with all that we have. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.